FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have you all with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a terrific panel for today's show. We're going to do something we don't do very often on Political Rewind, which is we're going to talk about ourselves, the media, journalism. Uh, Typically, uh, we sort of feel that uh, there are other things to discuss in the world of politics, and we try to do that. Um, But every now and then, especially in these times, talking about what's happening with journalism and how it interfaces with politics can be pretty significant. Um, so I want to bring in my panel for the show, starting with the managing editor and co-host of On the Media, a show which deals with, with media quite frequently, Brooke Gladstone. Uh, you hear her show on the media on uh, GPB radio across the state on Sundays at noon. Brooke, your show has always been essential listening, whether it's on the radio or on the podcast. But now more than ever, it just seems to me I, we've got to hear what you're doing. Uh, it's great to have you with us for Political Rewind, Brooke. Thank you so much. We're also joined by Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my partner on uh, Political Rewind one day a week. Uh, Kevin, I know that there are a lot of questions, a lot of uh, uh, comments that you're going to want to make about some of the issues that you and I that all of us in media deal with these days. But thanks for being here today, Kevin. Great to be here uh, with you, uh, Bill, and I, I look forward to a chance to talk to Brooke again. We're also joined by Tim Baruch, who is a uh, assistant professor of communications at uh, Georgia State University. Uh, Tim, one of the reasons that we thought it would be terrific to have you as part of this conversation is that a lot of your scholarship focuses on the role of public discourse in, politi- in structuring political and social life, especially with attention to the importance of citizenship, political judgment, and law. So thank you for agreeing to be part of the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, it's a great panel, and I'm looking forward to having a nice discussion about it. Lot to talk about. I want to start, if I may, let me just set the table, if I may. A Political Rewind is about, in about two weeks, we will start our eighth year on the air on GPB radio. You know, when we started uh, seven plus years ago, we were on the air one day a week. We did a summation of political news on a Friday afternoon show. And because you've uh, liked what we're doing, we've expanded uh over and over again to the point where we're now on the air, as you all know out there, five days a week. Uh, the show airs at nine live, and then we're on in a repeat at two o'clock in the afternoon. But the point of all that is to say from the very beginning, what we said about Political Rewind is we wanted it to be a show that was a showcase for smart, balanced conversation, giving people of varying political viewpoints an opportunity to come together and talk collegially about the politics and issues of our time. That sounds great, but that's becoming increasingly difficult to do. And as we get closer and closer to the 2020 elections, um, I think a lot of us are struggling with just how we talk in a balanced way about the politics of today. Um, Hey, Brooke, can can I start by uh, 
let me start by playing your co-host, Bob Garfield, uh, mm-hmm. did a special edition of On the Media with David Roberts. Dave Roberts, who wrote a piece for, initially he wrote a piece for Vox back in 2018 that was built around the um, New York Times editorial page and James Bennett, at that time the new editorial page editor, his difficulty in finding ways to get varied opinions, especially conservative opinions, that were responsible and respectable and that some ways represented the Trumpian point of view. About two weeks ago, Bob had um, him back on, Dave Roberts on again, and I thought their conversation uh, really sets us up for what we want to talk about today. So here's mm-hmm. Dave Roberts talking about why it's increasingly difficult to have respectable, contrary views with conservatives today. Let's listen. In post-war America, there were a lot of very strong assumptions that kind of went unstated that fed into that model of the op-ed page. And I think one of the assumptions, and I tried to get at this in my column, is that we are resting on a foundation of common agreement about certain basic principles, about certain forms of government being preferable over others, about the value of freedom and open speech. We share all these assumptions. And so within the playing field defined by those assumptions, let's hear people argue it out. The question is, what should an op-ed page look like without those bedrock assumptions? in place, because if you continue operating it on its original spirit, if you demand that people share those assumptions, then in practice, you're going to exclude a large chunk of today's conservative movement, because those bedrock assumptions no longer hold sway in today's GOP. And that's precisely the kind of problem that everyone's wrestling with in the media, not just the op-ed people, not just the editorial people, but also on the news side. So, Brooke, right. that really does set us up. <laughs> Go ahead. Weigh in. <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, I might quibble with him a little bit about uh, the conservative movement, because uh, people who regard themselves as the conservative music, uh, uh, conservative movement of your say that this is much more of a radical movement and there's very little resemblance to how they see the future of the country or how it ought to be. That said, yeah, there's a tremendous problem that basically causes the uh, legacy media, which I include public radio, newspapers like the uh, AJC, and, uh, and uh, yeah, right, uh, that fundamentally conflicts with our mid-century views of what the golden age of the media was like. Uh, we think of the kind of consensus that created Walter Cronkite, famously uh, elected in a poll in the 1970s as most trusted man in America, a person we'd call Uncle Walter, that we never would today, that somehow this was the moment of civilized journalism. This was the, the peak. And uh, looking back over that period, not so long ago, the period that many of us were alive during, and we realized that it was just another stage in our journalism, a stage of unusual consensus between the government and the media that was largely created by a new technology, 
for the first time a technology that made media more expensive rather than less expensive and forced us all to uh, amass larger audiences than we had before and created a new norm. That was television and the regulations that went with it. And the fear of, you know, annihilation through nuclear war and an urgency by the government to marginalize outliers, right? So we had a common pool of knowledge, a set of shared values that weren't questioned out, you know, in fact, really challenging those fundamental values was outside the range of legitimate debate. We are in an entirely different time now, a time that you could argue is much more like the majority of time in which American journalism has existed, in which one's values and principles are as much on the table as policies and tweaking around the edges. And so what a reporter has to do now is what they had to do in the past, which is use their judgment, their experience, and their values to inform what they cover and how they cover it. We were kind of free from doing that up until the Internet and then pushed to the abyss by the uh, extremism of Donald Trump. You know, I go back over history. I look at how the coverage of slavery was even seen as an either-or issue back in the day in certain of the most, quote, respectable newspapers. Same thing with the internment of the Japanese. These are all things, and women's suffrage, these are all things that were considered debatable. Now it looks like all those efforts to be objective put those reporters on the wrong side of history. Uh, we are at a fascinating moment of living history right now. So, Kevin, I want to take put this in the practical terms that, that we deal with and that you deal with as editor of the AJC every day. You know, again, I want a show that's balanced, that offers people of varying political points of view the opportunity to talk about issues uh, in, 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 a, in a collegial way. I've already said that. Okay, but... In a world where President Trump says that violent protesters who are part of Antifa are burning down our cities, have taken over protests and made them violent, how do I represent that side of it's he repeat over and over again the president misleads, uh, makes misstatements. And I don't know how to have intelligent conversations when we're trying to deal with the way he presents himself. I'm even hesitant right now, Kevin, to use the word lies. But how do we as responsible journalists not talk about that? I think it's a very tough question, uh, Bill. And, and, you know, we at the ACC, I, I would say I first started really noticing this a few years back because we were getting a steady drumbeat of complaints about our conservative columnists. And, uh, you know, of course, the conservative columnists, uh, and, and, you know, David Roberts talked a little bit about that in his, uh, in his conversation with Bob Garfield. They are, without question, historically part of the Republican establishment, you know, the establishment in media. But what would happen is that we would get these, this, this uh, onslaught of emails from people who would say, you don't have conservative columnists because they are criticizing President Trump. 
or they're criticizing candidate Trump. Therefore, they cannot be conservative. Therefore, you are biased. Therefore, you are ruining America. And so it became a really difficult situation because the idea that even the liberal columnists we had from wire services and places like that criticized President Obama. They weren't always complimentary or supportive of what Obama wanted to do. There's, it's just been a sea change where the, it is uh, Trumpism and not really a republicanism or conservatism. Tim, jump in here. Well, Tim, let me share something else with you and then ask you and then Brooke to get back in. Here's what Margaret Sullivan wrote in the uh, Washington Post recently. She now uh, does media criticism for them after leaving the New York Times. She said this, the core question is this, in this polarized, dangerous moment, what are journalists supposed to be? Pose that question to most members of the public and you get an answer, something like this. Just tell me the bare facts. Leave your interpretation out of it. Don't be on anyone's side. That's an appealing idea at first blush. It's also one that doesn't always work, especially right now. Every piece of reporting, written or spoken, told in text or in images, is the product of choices. Every article approaches its subject, subject from somebody's perspective. Tim, and then Brooke. Yeah, so as someone who studies and tries to teach students about the, the public art of argument and, and controversy, you know, I try to teach students that it's something we shouldn't shy from. And yet there are certain preconditions or happy conditions in which argumentation or public controversy produces good government. Uh, undoubtedly, that includes uh, some kind of a commitment or, that we share um, to what counts as evidence, to uh, just a commitment to resolve disputes according to argument. Um, so to the extent that that's being abandoned by an administration, I think it's perfectly appropriate for journalists and people who work in media uh, to observe as such and uh, make help its readership make evidence-based determinations. One now, I'm in the classroom, and uh, I'm in I'm in academics, and so one thing that I don't have to be wedded to is my circulation numbers and my clicks, and uh, so that I think complicates things for folks who are in journalist shoes and for folks who are in Kevin and Brooke's shoes and yours. Um, because you have to give the readership what it is looking for on some level. Yeah, I think that uh, another thing is that, and I know that some listeners may not like this, but it isn't altogether clear that people really, people, people think they want accuracy, and people really think they want balance. But if you take a careful look at the polls, when they say those things, and then you look at trust in the media over time, what you find is that the media become more popular when they are reflecting public sentiment. For instance, the coverage of Katrina was deeply problematic, right? It was not accurate, and there was lots of rumor. And we all know in the, uh, in the aftermath that it completely misrepresented the, uh, the population. But we loved it as viewers because the outrage of people being abandoned was expressed by people like Anderson Cooper and all of the general network news shows. Uh, the media experienced a spike in coverage at a time when it was really at its most inaccurate, but at its most emotionally resonant. And we saw that during Watergate. You know, there was a lot of good, accurate reporting. The media took a dip. Then afterwards, 
it spiked. In the run-up to the war, it, uh, you know, it dipped and spiked according to what the public sentiment was. So people do and always have looked at the media to present their views, to bolster them, and to, uh, and to favor them, to put them above the fold, so to speak. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken where people said, why don't the media cover such and such? And I'll say, good question. How did you learn of it? And they'll say, New York Times, but it was on page, you know, A7 below the fold, you know, so it right. didn't count. <laughs> Uh, and, and it's reasonable. We do serve as the reader's surrogates and the listener's surrogates and the viewer's surrogates and to a great extent. That is part of our job. Uh, but it isn't balance and the uh, inclusion of voices across the spectrum that really anybody wants right now in a time of such deepened tribalism. And I think it's really important that the... Uh, the so-called mainstream media, lamestream if you like, don't allow Fox News to set the agenda for our coverage. If the president says something that is demonstrably untrue, like it stopped raining when he began his inaugural speech, uh, we are under no obligation to present that statement. That's my view. So, Kevin— uh, let's again. I want to bring it down to a practical matter, just for a second here. So uh, the president goes to Tulsa over the weekend, and uh, uh, newspapers and, and broadcast news have sound bites from uh, some of the people who came to support the president. And some of them are saying things like, "Well, we this virus is overblown. It's exaggerated. Uh, it's fake news." So. Put yourself as the editor of the AJC in a position of having a reporter who comes back to you with that story. Says, here are the quotes from some of the people who love Donald Trump. The virus is exaggerated. It's overblown. What's your responsibility in dealing with statements like that and many, many others in which Trump misleads people to your readers? Well, Bill, I do think there's a just reality of, of representing the point of view that some people have, but but qualifying it. Um, one of the things that this always reminds me of is that uh, back in the early days of newspaper websites, about 20 years ago, we used to get a ton of grief about allowing comments on stories. And people would just say, oh, my gosh, they're so misinformed and they're so hostile and racist and dangerous and all that stuff. And, you know, they were impossible to really moderate and keep track of without making a huge investment in doing that. And, and one of the things I would tell people is that it's important to know that people out there think that way, that there are people who see the world right or wrong, completely misinformed or not differently than, than you might. And then, of course, we all hoped that once people couldn't have sort of false identities online, <laughs> that this would all get cleaned up. And when they had to use their Facebook identity or their Twitter identity, things would get better. But it's, but it's only gotten worse. And I do think that's part of the struggle is you can't really ignore the fact that there are a significant number of Americans who apparently do believe the virus is a hoax and that they shouldn't take any precautions against it. If I could just jump in, I we need to know that from a citizenship perspective and from a policy perspective as well uh, in order to move forward 
uh, one of the things that it's important to know is that journalists, when they're reporting, are doing more than just repre representing a belief. Um, they're they're creating a record um, that we're looked back on in history, but also for policy purposes. And we absolutely have to understand that when the president says something, that that's what our leadership is saying. I would respond by saying there are so many falsehoods. I mean, he fills the air with shiny objects. And there was an effort at one point to interrogate them all. I think there has to be a, a certain amount of triage. You, you choose the ones that are of greatest moment. You don't have to, as the Washington Post did at the beginning, you know, he said they'd run out of ball gowns for the inaugural in Washington, D.C. They actually dispatched someone to find out that uh, actually, no, there were still plenty of ball gowns. But there are, you know, the things he says about the coronavirus are part of history, and I by, I by no means suggest that we uh, remove him from the history. I'm just saying that there is so much to go through that a certain amount of triage has to happen. And when those statements come out, they have to be interrogated. I actually feel the statements of the misinformed statements of some of his supporters uh, absolutely need to be interrogated and contextualized and described and countered with facts because that's a, that's a public health issue. And it's, it's, an all, it's also an issue for democracy writ large. It's not that I'm saying we should extirpate Trump from our pages or from the pages of history. I just suggest, I urge that false statements are not given the same weight as true statements. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show, and uh, we'll have more with our panel in just a moment. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Brooke Gladstone, co-host and managing editor of On the Media, which airs on GPB radio across the state on Sunday afternoon at noon, is with us. Uh, so is Kevin Riley, my partner here on, uh, on many editions of the show. Kevin, of course, the editor, the boss at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Tim Baruch, professor of journalism in the School of Communications at Georgia State University. Kevin, let me go back to Dave Roberts again, if I may, uh, and read you a statement and then get you start and get everybody to weigh in. Because I think this is fascinating because there does seem to me to have been a pendulum swing in how the media responded to President Trump's election uh, and then what's happened since then. And here's what Robert said back in the column he wrote after the election was over. The traumatic and unexpected 2016 victory of Donald Trump convinced a great many people in elite political circles that they are hopelessly out of touch. There's a whole parallel country of which they're only dimly aware, and they urgently need to understand the perspectives of the people who rallied behind Trump. The signal feature of the 2016 election is that it settled the question of whether U.S. conservatism, the actual movement, not the people in Washington think tanks who claim to be its spokesmen, 
is animated by a set of shared ideals and policies. It is not. So, Kevin, I bring that up because there was this rush uh, after the election for news organizations to get out in the heartland to say, oh, my goodness, we haven't been listening to the voices of those folks in Kansas who voted for Trump, whose values are different than ours. But we seem to have recognized that you can only go so far with that, that the people who spoke speak on behalf of President Trump are not representing those values at all. Well, yeah, as a native Ohioan and someone who works in the media, I was fascinated by that bill when it happened because Ohio was one of the places that really uh, appeared to have changed or, or gotten uh, into a whole different place than, than what people expected. Um, and, I, and I do think, I mean, anytime we in the media are surprised or feel like we've missed the story somehow, we, we do react uh, pretty quickly and in a big way to try to figure out, uh, figure out what we missed and why we missed it. I mean, I think there's a responsibility to do that for sure. But I think it takes a long time to get to the answers to those kind of complicated questions. And, and I do think we have a habit of kind of rushing to an answer, to being in a big hurry to uh, write, write whatever mistake or correct whatever we got wrong. And in the case of, let's just call it Trumpism, I, I think we're still trying to figure it out. I would I, I would love to say that there was a great move to the heartland, but a lot of the time the reporters were asking basically a variation of a question like this. So do you still feel that way about Trump? Do you still like Trump? How is Trump to you? I mean, it, it was still too Trump-focused and not enough uh, addressing the systemic conditions that would bring people to uh, embrace Trump. And I think that that actually is what we're reckoning with three years in, finally. Uh, the systemic issues, not just of racism, but of economic inequality. Uh, there's also there some hard truths about wanting to give up even the perception of privilege, even if you've never been allowed to really exercise it because you're broke and uh, work two jobs, and even though you're white, you're, you are still a member of the underclass, which is an idea that you're going to want to resist. Uh, it is about systems, more than about, you know, the tip of the iceberg, which is Trump, Trump, Trump. And I, did th I do think it took reporters or editors or just uh, news outlets in general, despite a real sincerity, to, uh, to dig into the questions that really mattered. And they're so complicated. There is, I completely agree. There is no simple answer. And there often has been a rush to judgment and a kind of, oh, a kind of pattern to a lot of these stories. Even in our greatest newspapers, you've got the, you know, the person with the guns on the wall and the hat and the, you know, lack of dental work making statements. And it, it's, uh, you realize that they were there, but they weren't there. Not really. They had their head from wherever they dispatched still making those decisions. I see this in some ways as two related but distinct problems. So there's a lot of uh, and a lot of self-flagellating in the media because they got a prediction wrong. Um, they mm -hmm. thought that one candidate was going to win the election and the other one won it instead. Um, mm -hmm. And in the run-up to that election, um, many 
news outlets were covering elections the way they tend to cover them, which is a horse race me metaphor. And then it's a narrative that um, they thought would entertain its readers. And that's a very different function from the function of holding institutions accountable. Um, and journalists now are in a very difficult position because they've got to, uh, I, mean, I, I don't think the horse race um, story is going to do the job here. I, mean, mm. I, I think it's, it's going to take a lot more uh, soul searching on behalf of those who are covering the campaigns. And um, like Brooke had mentioned, um, not just make sense of people who voted for Trump, because that's undoubtedly still important, because as I had mentioned before, we, we're still sharing a country and keeping it in, in, and we still hold this in common, however much we might dislike it. And there needs to be healing done. I think, Tim, you're exactly right uh, that some uh, and Brooke alluded to this at, at, as we were beginning the show. I, some of the real traditions and longtime practices and rules of thumb, I think, just don't work anymore in this day and age, that the, the ground is shifting below us and that we as journalists have to figure that out and have to struggle with it. Um, I wrote about that this weekend in my column where we decided uh, in this extremely emotional, complicated Richard Brooks case um, to do some deeper reporting before we uh, uh, wrote about some aspects of his life. Because, you know, usually in journalism, the rule we like to follow is report what you know as soon as you know it and just keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. In fact, really, the theme of the movie, All the President's Men, is pretty much <laughs> that. Let's just keep going at it. And I think we're in a day and age now uh, where that might not really be the best thing to do. And I try to explain that to readers on how we did it. And I got some really good reactions and I got some really bad ones as well. <laughs> My real question is whether we can get uh, media, let's just call them media consumers, but people, the public, citizens, uh, to come along with us on how we ought to do these things. I don't think any of us is going to ever find a Walter Cronkite again, but but people, um, you know, have to be willing to because the audience ultimately is really in charge. Kevin, let's be clear about what what you're talking about with your column. Uh, your reporters, like like many uh, news organizations uh, around, uh, probably around the country, got you you found out fairly quickly that Rayshard Brooks had more of a, more problems with the police than was very initially reported. He was uh, accused of a number of crimes, including abusing a child, uh, I think abuse of his, his partner. And instead of reporting that immediately, you had your uh, staff dig in further to find out what was really behind those accusations. And when you did that, you learned that, in fact, those charges perhaps were not as ominous or pejorative as they initially seemed. Is that a fair way of expressing that? It sure is, Bill. Let me let me just preface it though before I get into some of the details, and you'll have to keep me from wading too deeply into them. That this also uh, plays into this uh, question of the narrative around this uh, white officer shooting this black man, because uh, there were a number of news organizations who were reporting his criminal record, and of course, there's a question about well. He, the cop who shot him is now charged with murder. Why would you seek to report the criminal record of a murder victim? 
And then you get into what happened during the incident. And all that. So that is a, a debate, one of the questions I ask in the column and I've heard a lot about. But what was put out there initially was that he was charged with it previously and, and, and pled guilty to battery, false imprisonment, and child cruelty because those records were readily available on the Internet, uh, not hard for people to find. And so what we wanted to do was dig in and say, gosh, what really happened there? It turns out that the battery charge uh, came from during an argument with his wife. He grabbed her by the wrist, became battery. Uh, mm -hmm. He pulled her into another room, and that became false imprisonment. And he did so in front of her seven-year-old son. That became child cruelty. Sat in jail for seven months, got offered a plea deal that said, if you go to prison for a year, we'll count the time served then you're done. He took the deal. So there's more to it than what people were saying and what was spreading on the internet. And actually, there was more to it than we knew in the in the immediate aftermath of that story. But it's a tough question. I mean, we had the information about those big charges and waited until we knew more. God, I am and so... And Brooke, at a moment when... That's amazing. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just, you know, that is precisely what needs to be done. Because, and, and probably the reason why you chose to do it is not just because you don't, you know, what about why you're digging into the, the history of a murder victim, but I think that we all have a heightened sense of the systems that mark people for life, especially African Americans, and we've all become very conscious of what frequently happens when they come into contact with the criminal justice system. And I think it was, it's just amazing how, not that you wouldn't have applied it before, but that we're all aware of it now, that uh, you can't take things at face value, um, you know, from institutions uh, that have regular contact with Africa, the criminal justice system in general. I'll say that they all, you know, often police are the in Katrina police uh, were were basically the uh, the source of uh, a lot of misinformation to begin with. And uh, it was very hard to check. I just think it's wonderful that you did. I applaud you for it. Well, well thank you. I'm hoping uh, that Tim will Tim will respond to this. I'm going to read you part of an email that I got about this, uh, Tim. Your editorial answered a question for me and made me even more upset that the AJC as a news organization withheld information from the public. I find this very insulting. I missed the days when there was some source of impartial journalism left for the public to go to. We do not need you or anyone in the media to decide that we as the public cannot interpret information for ourselves without your help. What can be said? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so that sounds like a reader who is disgruntled for the good old days, uh, and uh, and they're being ripped from uh, from underneath them. And and yet, um, the idea that the police might manipulate or institutions might manipulate journalists is not a new one. I've I played the film Absence of Malice to my uh, to my students in one of my classes and there you have a classic case of Sally Field being fed misinformation um, uh, and being played on some level by by institutions. So the idea that this is and the only other thing I would add to this uh, Kevin Ambrook is that 
to me, citizens might be helped with explicit connections to relevance and context in the stories, mm-hmm. uh, and and make and laying that bare um, for the readers so that the context can be, uh, you know, can be can be filled out. One last point I would like to address oh. uh, about that email, which is that. Uh, Exactly what time of good old days is he referring to, the time when he was getting completely uninflected news? When I brought up Walter Cronkite, Most Trusted Man in America, I wasn't being nostalgic for those days. That was the days when, that, those were the days when the discussion was incredibly narrow, when you never saw a person of color or someone who was Jewish or someone with a vowel at the end of their name or, a, uh, or a, an accent. Uh, uh, on television, it was completely leave it to Beaver in the news and in the culture. Um, and if you go all the way back to that quote that Adolf Oakes, the uh, who purchased the New York Times in 1896, that famous quote that journalists always used to live by, he said, "It will be my earnest aim that the New York Times gives the news impartially, without fear or favor, regardless of party sector interests involved." If you read the rest of that. He says, nor will there be a departure from the general tone, that is to say the consensus, unless it be to intensify its devotion to the cause of sound money and tariff reform and the lowest tax consistent with good government. In other words, what he believed was objectivity was a very specific political perspective. And what we have now simply is a divided country and a lack of consensus. And what your letter writer is email writer is really missing is the fact that we just don't agree anymore on the direction the country should take and we uh and now we seem to be able to disagree on the facts themselves anybody who says the coronavirus is a fake has been duped right so we've used the word, Brooke, you're the second person on the show, I wish I had a drinking game going, to use the word <laughs> impartial or impartiality. We, we talk about the value of journalists being impartial, and I would argue that that word is increasingly meaningless. So, for example, um, I have had panelists come on the show, uh, not anymore, but there was a time when a, a panelist might come on the show, and uh, without my <laughs> inviting them to do it, uh, Quote a story from Infowars, a notorious source of bad propaganda. I would argue that if I pushed back on that person, uh, which I would do, if I said, I'm sorry, that what you just said is there's no foundation, in fact, for what you've just said, I would argue that I was essentially being impartial. But a Trump supporter would argue that I was showing my media liberality, right, Brooke? Well, of course, of course. Uh, but the fact is, objectivity, impartiality, and all of that, yeah, it's, it's always been a mirage. And, uh, and yeah. fundamentally, the, uh, the Internet has changed the nature of the debate from this language devoid of, uh, you know, of strong words. I mean, we all know what it took for the New York Times to finally use the word lie. It's, uh, you know, I could go into that, but probably we don't need to. Uh, it's been very hard for us to change the, the uh, kind of dispassionate kind of language, or rather the, the sort of passionless language that uh, journalism is supposed to have 
for a more pointed and more direct language. But because of the Internet, and, you know, if Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man of, of that age, probably now, I mean, there were, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, there was a, uh, another poll and it, among young, for young people, and John Stewart was the most trusted man in America. And I think that's the difference between what used to be kind of a cleansing inoculation to just have language and balance, numerical balance, false balance, I would call it, that used to protect us. Uh, it doesn't anymore. I think now transparency is the new objectivity. I think it's been the case now for well over a decade. Best to uh, reveal who you are, then summon up the best argument you can for pushing against information that you, that you know is wrong, but let the audience identify you because they won't believe that you aren't part of one tribe or another. So, uh, 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 Tim, I would argue that there are times when we who are in journalism are our own worst enemies uh, when it comes to feeding the anti-media uh, uh, feelings out there. I was going to say frenzy. Sometimes it is a frenzy. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. I, I, I do think when you read the coverage in the mainstream media of President Trump's rally in Tulsa, and saw all the stories about the arena, which was empty. I mean, there were 6,000 people in a 19,000-seat uh, venue. I did think it was fair to say there was a certain amount of schadenfreude <laughs> as reporters kind of gleefully talked about nobody showed up for this rally. I mean, it strikes me that that is an example that we've got— sometimes we do have to be a little cautious— uh, I think, in the way we approach something like that. I mean, I do think that's an example of us being our own worst enemies. Uh, Tim, then, Kevin, I know you want to jump in on that, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have conflicting goals here, uh, as or journalists will have conflicting goals on this. If you have uh, a dog in the race, so to speak, um, and you feel vindicated, um, but no victory laps, and you have to take the cost of that, which are that if you're interested in a circulation for those with whom you disagree on some level, uh, that kind, those that kind, those kinds of stories, that kind of construction is not going to get to where we we think we need to be moving. Um, whether we call that neutrality or objectivity or impartiality, um, it, it's not going it, to it's not going to speak to those folks on the other side uh, or different sides. And if those of us, if we think well they're not worth speaking to, um, we still have the practical problem of governance and, and decision-making. Well, the other thing, I, I mean, I'll, I'll see if you, you all agree with me on this, but I just think the television network, setting aside their particular approach and view, uh, contribute to this and, and this, you know, being on 24 hours a day, always having to have something to report, um, all these things. Because I, I can tell in my in my email inbox in the morning, I, uh, I'll get like a string of emails about some, you know, I remember, I think it was a story when Paul Manafort was put in jail. He was 
they took away his shoelaces or something. It was something like that. And and apparently somewhere on the networks they talked about that all night, and we didn't have anything in the paper on it, you know, because the old newspaper thing is like when when something happens, we'll write about it. People talking about things happening or wishing something would happen or imagining something happened or, you know, because his shoelaces had nothing to do with the case. And um, but when you, you watch any of the networks in the evening, I mean, they've they're they've got hours to talk. They must talk about things. And the more extreme the commentators are, the more I think they're likely to get invited back. And, and we all know it makes for more interesting television. I mean, if you watch it yourself, who's interested in this very reasonable person? You know, it's always like, wow, I wonder how far this or where this one's going to go. And and so then that, I think, colors the whole media because people are so exposed. Televisions are on in elevators and lobbies and, you know, it's all day long and you just can't get away from it. And it people begin to see the formula. Yeah, well, I just completely agree that gratu- gratuitous gotchas uh, do not help create a national discussion or don't enable us to bring people together to discuss the truth or falsity of something. I also felt that there was a great deal of schadenfreude. And, I, and you know, we have – sometimes we have this discussion on the show. Do we – you know, is this – this shows hypocrisy or this is where he was proved wrong. wrong. Do we – is that important? Just like it's the same kind of triage. I think that we really need to confine ourselves, given how much material there is, to the stuff that really affects the nature of our lives. And whether or not somebody showed up at a conference and proved them wrong, and maybe they were tricked by uh, K-pop, you know, internet users or uh, others who falsely decided to register for the event. I mean, it's an interesting thing to cover. It's a very, that is interesting because it shows how, how we can use social platforms in different ways for political reasons. But to just be glad that he was wrong and to talk about how dejected he looked uh, and to enjoy ourselves while we're doing it really does make it harder and harder for any of us to reach across uh, our tribal lines and talk to each other. Thank you for that. I got to get a quick break in. When we come back, just a couple minutes left on this edition of Political Rewind. Um, we've just got a few minutes left. Brooke Gladstone, as long as you are here and you've been so generous with the amount of time you've given us, I think I want to promote your a couple of your books. Your book, <laughs> The Trouble with Reality, which is how long ago was that published? couple of years now. That was the last time you did our show. <laughs> right. It was, uh, it was published just a couple of months into the Trump presidency. Yeah. But the trouble mm-hmm. with reality, one of the reasons I wanted to mention it, is um, you basically say that we, the trouble with reality is that there never what it's always been a bubble. You say that lying is the point in the Trump administration, mm-hmm. and, and therefore, that, you know, reality point. doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But so there's that. But then I think you said right before we started today, you 10 years ago wrote a book called The Influencing Machine, which is really fun because it's a uh, it's a it's an illustrated uh, book. And did you say you're about to have a new a new book edition of that come out? Right. Well, yeah, it came out in 2011 and so we're looking at the 10th anniversary in in uh, next year and it's 
and of course this is pre-Trump, and some of the fundamental uh, beliefs that I held then have shifted substantially. So I feel in order to represent what I've learned in the last decade of social media, um, we needed to do that. So that, that is coming up. And thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Well, we're, we're not quite done because I want to make a point about the influencing machine. It seems to me, when I think back to that book, that one of the, you talked essentially about the fact that the public kind of gets the media that reflects what its own views are. We're responsible for the way the media panders to us in many ways. I think that's kind of a quick summation. But what's fascinating is that was written before social media became much more important. Now, social media does pander to every position that we want. And so it becomes even more significant that we are getting exactly what we want on Twitter, on Facebook, or whatever, right? Ah, that is precisely where I have somewhat shifted, because I always thought it was just that we are fundamentally fearful and selfish. I have changed weirdly my view of humanity based on new research. And uh, although I do describe in the book how, how we can be controlled, or maybe I didn't even in that book, by, uh, by certain triggers that release certain neurotransmitters like uh, dopamine and so on, if we lie to ourselves effectively, which was some really fascinating information that was uh, fascinating research that was done. I also know that we can be, uh, we don't have to be our worst selves. Social media, if it treats us with dignity and allows us to do what we want to do without trying to distract us with uh, flashing mirrors and fears and uh, tribal hatreds, we, uh, we can be our better angels. And uh, we d so I, I said that we do get the media we deserve. That was the end of the book. And now I think that if we just treated ourselves with dignity, if corporations treated us with dignity, if politicians did, if they didn't expect the worst of us, research suggests that we could be better. So it isn't, it isn't just our problem. We are almost out of time. Kevin Riley, I, Brooke Gladstone, I would argue, just gave a plug for what we try to do on Political Rewind every day, which is to uh, speak to the better, the better angels of our nature and have really smart <laughs> conversations, yeah? And you're working on it at the age of, let's all plug each other at this point. The show. Thank you. Sorry we to are out of time. <laughs> No, 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 no. You are, you've been great to give us your time. Uh, uh, Tim Baruch, thank you for uh, joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to have you as part of the show. Um, Kevin Riley, you know I always like it when you partner with me on Political Rewind. Uh, you'll be back with me next Thursday, of course, uh, for our show then. And Brooke Gladstone, managing editor and uh, co-host of On the Media. I said it when we started, Brooke. I think uh, On the Media has become more vital than ever. You're dealing with such important issues, and I thank you for sharing some of your insights with us today. So that's it for this edition of Political Rewind. Go ahead, Brooke. We got enough time for you to make a comment. I just wanted to say thanks, that's all. Don't you just cut all the cut everything I said <laughs> at the beginning and at the end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you won't go thank you all. <laughs> Thank you all very much for a terrific Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again soon. Um, in the meantime, take care and please, please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>